Welcome to Frontline. Welcome to Frontline. My name is David Gill. I'm Andrew James. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about the world of addiction and responding to people in addiction. I guess even the terminology is an interesting one, because as I've just mentioned there, we're talking about addiction today, but sometimes you hear people refer to it as drug use, uh, drug and alcohol use, medication perhaps, substance misuse and I always find that interesting because is it misuse when you are using it for a reason so is it substance use one of the I guess a more positive term you're hearing is is substance use disorders you also have things like steroid use which is something works more on your body than a psychoactive effect you have new psychoactive substances formerly known as legal highs basically it's a big area isn't it it's a weighty subject, yeah, yeah, but we're not we're not one to shy away from them. No, so so we we're going to touch upon some of the key areas today. I'm sure that we will have certain follow up episodes just because this this area is changing so so rapidly. With that in mind, then, what's your thoughts, then, Andrew? What's your thoughts on this as a topic in terms of the challenges that services are potentially facing out there? Well, there's going to be lots of uh, challenges that services are going to be facing. I mean, there's the standard challenges that you get when dealing with clients in the field of substance use, which we'll get to further down the line. But in the current climate, I think what you're going to be seeing a lot of is, as you alluded to previously, first of all, a lot of use of novel substances, newer substances that people won't have been uh, as familiar with as previous years. You saw this a few years back with the, the rise of spice and people getting used to the the impacts that that would have on their service users that you, you were dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And there's always, unfortunately, new and more frightening substances coming out all the time that thankfully now are covered under legislation, although previously they weren't. But I think the main issue that the agencies are going to be dealing with in the current climate is funding. It's not a, a jolly subject to talk about, and it is fraught with its hazards. But unfortunately, as as we all know, in the current climate, there do, does seem to be more of a uh, a movement more towards further cuts than additional funding, which is is of concern, I'm sure will be concerning many people who work in this field. If, if anyone's aware, there was something known as the Dame Carol Black report that came out last year, which was the second part of it, that, that looked into the current situation in terms of treatment for those with long in addiction or needing that support in, in, in some way. And her report was quite, it was quite scathing, really. It just basically highlighted that it was chronically underfunded. Services didn't have the money. We were only able to respond to so much and the demand just far outweighed um, what was actually available. And I guess the government did respond. So I think if we're looking at this in a fair way, they did respond with a new drug strategy in December last year, December 2021, that is, where they promised 900 million overall, which is a substantial amount and 533 million specifically for treatment services. However, Like with many of these areas, it's how that money is being utilised and in terms of the guidance put on services to spend this money in a certain way. For example, one of the biggest areas that that people have been pushed to spend the money on is around recruitment, more staff, which is great. However, this field is really, really struggling recruiting talented staff and retaining staff. And so the challenge you've then got is you're giving these services the money, but telling them to spend it in a certain way and if they can't spend it, unfortunately, as we know with the, with how this this whole works, is it's often you are left with the use it or lose it attitude of if you don't spend it, you obviously didn't want it, so we're going to take it off you. So there is not only is finally some funding going in, but maybe it just isn't being utilised as well as it could be. I think, unfortunately, this is something that has been seen in other areas as well. I mean, I know this could be an entire other show in itself, but... Um, I know the, the, the drug, drug treatment, drug services, although they do a, a 
the staff in there do a very good and very important job. Unfortunately, as the um, as the report did allude to, in a similar way to mental health services, effectively services were dealing with people at crisis point rather than being able to put in the effective work to engage people and manoeuvre them away from crisis, which effectively, if, if you are a, a, a strictly dollars and cents kind of person, which, you know, those in government do seem to be for to a good reason to for a good reason to a degree the public purse is only it's a finite figure and it has to be spent in a certain way so if if you are concerned about where money gets spent cut in a cost effective way maneuvering people away from crisis points surely is the most cost effective because once someone hits that point of crisis you know you, you could see people having to uh, deal very quickly with mental health services nhs ambulance services a and e and then further down the line, it could be inpatient support or outpatient support. Whereas if you could get more targeted and focused drug treatment prior to the point of crisis, cost efficiency, it works. But unfortunately, that mindset just overall just hasn't been there, which is sad, quite frankly. If you kind of look at the, the most basic measure of this, the most tragic measure, which is, of course, deaths associated with, with drug poisonings, the, the latest statistics showed 4,859 people lost their lives, which was an increase on the previous year. And just since 2015, when there was 3,674 deaths, that's been a 1,185 increase in just seven years, which is just an astronomical amount of people being affected by this. And there's been various studies that have been completed that have shown that actually so much of this is to do with those austerity measures that came into effect just over 10 years ago now when we started to say, well, we've got to tighten our, uh, our purse strings and we can't afford to do this, this and this. And there was, a, I guess, a misconception that the reason why drug-related deaths have been going up is the cohort of, of users that may have got into it in the 90s and now, unfortunately, their bodies are giving up. But that isn't the case. It's because we have just been chronically underfunding those services for such a point that could do, as you mentioned, a lot more proactive, person-centred, positive work. And it now just focused, unfortunately, just on those crisis events. I know that a lot of the work I do with drug services, it's just that they, they, the caseloads, my goodness, over a hundred people for some places. And I, I don't know about you, but I struggle to, to know what someone looks like after about 20 people on a caseload, 40 people, you really struggle with 50, ridiculous, but over a hundred people and you are one person, how on earth? Can you support that person, manage the risks and ultimately help them in their recovery? It's just nigh on impossible. And it's one of the reasons why we've seen over the last X amount of years, a push in drug treatment to move towards groups only, group ways of working. And again, I've got nothing against group working, but it has to be seen as a viable option as part of a suite of options rather than the only option. Unfortunately, so many people are needing that support, needing that help, and being told, well, you've got a long waiting list, and when you do, you've got to go into a group where you've got to talk about things you might not feel comfortable doing. It's it's just, it's a system that hasn't been working. There's no wonder why a lot of people who are very vulnerable have been voting with their feet and not turning up. And I just want to make it perfectly clear that we are not attacking drug services here because they are doing the best they can with what limited money that they have been given over the, again, last X amount of years. The high levels of caseloads, unfortunately, it's one of those vicious cycles. The high level of caseloads then leads to a, um, a, a difficulty in maintaining or recruiting staff, which then becomes just a recurring problem throughout the field. It, yeah, and yeah, we don't want to be dwelling too much on the, the the dark sides of these things. I know that sometimes we've uh, had these discussions, and sometimes they can fall into something that could be seen to be a pit of despair. Uh, that's not that's not where we want them to go to, because as we said before, there are a lot of brilliant people who work in these fields. There's a lot of brilliant work that happens in these fields, but we're just trying to, I know, I guess, in fairness to them, try to paint an accurate picture of, of the world in which they are doing this work. And unfortunately, that is not always the brightest. What we were trying to do here is just put it in into balance, just be honest with the current climate that, that we are in. It, it's, it's a difficult, challenging climate. And the thing with it, you, again, you mentioned it earlier on, about the, the challenge with everything that's with, with people using drugs in a chaotic manner 
is it's like a ripple effect, everything that goes out in terms of accessing mental health support, perhaps uh, ambulance crews in hospital, maybe in an inpatient unit, all of those things stems from this issue. And And I think, again, one of the problems has been with how services have classically been commissioned. There was a period when there was a push towards positive multi-agency working, everyone under one roof working together. And that kind of lost its way a little bit. And we saw a lot of services commissioned in isolation. And, and I think one of the terms I've heard quite a lot is what's called competitive commissioning, where these co- contracts were put out towards the drug services or the providers out there with almost an expectation that they would fight over it. And, and it's it's a horrible thing to, to see this com- competitive commissioning where, say, me and you are different agencies, and I come in and offer this one figure. Oh, you're offering this budget of 10 million for this service over three years. I'll do it for 9 million. Then you sweep in and go, 9 million? I'll do it for you, 8 million. I'll slash my I'll slash all my staff. I'll up the caseloads, but we can do it. And again, I don't want to simplify very complex arguments, but that's ultimately one of the factors within this is that we've just got to got used to doing more with a lot less. And at some points, like anything, it, there's going to be that breaking point. Okay. So then the question then comes, what have we seen then as in practice that we will have seen ourselves, things we would have heard about, or just different changes in strategy that we've been made aware of uh, that could be positive or, or beneficial ways of, uh, of addressing this issue? There's one that I'm sure will be mentioned at, at some other podcasts at different times of different approaches to the issue of uh, drug addiction, treating drug addiction. But what, what one of the more perhaps extreme ways I've, uh, that I've, I've been made aware of, at least, was the the, the, the methods uh, taken in Portugal, which was in, I think, in 2000, I believe it was, the, the quite radical decision was taken to decriminalise all substances. And that was to move people away from a more punitive method and then get people into uh, access to treatment a lot easier and a lot faster to make it a public health issue rather than a uh, criminal justice issue. That, of course, isn't without it pitfalls and perils because it, it means that although your uh, policing and budgets will reduce and your prison budgets will reduce as a result, then your public health budgets would swell. But it is at least some th- thinking out of the box. It's a different approach to what is quite a complex issue. Which is directly referenced in the new drug strategy, which basically says the prospect of decriminalising any substance has been completely ruled out. And as they put it, because it risks increasing drug use, which I think is a very simplistic way of looking at a very complex argument. And I think, as you mentioned there, I think it would benefit far more than it would would cause problems. There would be that knock-on effect, as you mentioned, a great emphasis on health, public health. And we know the NHS is not in a good place at the minute, but surely the knock-on effects in other ways is what is worth exploring. But the new strategy just states it's just not worth considering it. And I guess it's also interesting to, to look at Labour in this, because we're, we're talking about the government, a conservative government, but Labour have even said that they wouldn't even consider decriminalising drugs. So there is this opinion across all parties that perhaps, apart from, I believe it's the Green Party that's, that would take this approach, but we're being honest, I'm not attacking the Greens here, but the likelihood of them forming a government is relatively small. Uh, so we have to consider that what whoever is in power, Conservatives or, or Labour moving forward, this is going to be something we have to work within. And there is no mention in the strategy as well of any legislative changes to existing drug laws. And considering we still rely on the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act, a, a piece of legislation even that came to effect 51 years ago, and we're still using it for everything. And this was before things like online purchasing, before the range of new psychoactive sub- substances came into effect, and yet we're still demanding that it is used in that way. Yes, there was the 2016 Psychoactive Substances Act that was deemed to uh, deal with so-called legal highs in new psychoactive substances, but again, various studies have shown it hasn't actually been that beneficial, and that what they have done is increased risk. The shop selling it, no longer selling it, which meant it's fallen into classic drug dealing networks, which has increased risk and purities uh, has dropped off, and unfortunately, drug-related deaths associated with these new drugs have also uh, increased as well. So. So how we respond, if we just think of it as black and white, right or wrong, we are missing such an important part of this. And that is, in, in a nutshell, isn't it? It's, that, that's the classic argument between decriminalisation and prohibition. Decriminalisation, it could be argued, could lead to an increase of use, but then 
the counter argument is, but then you at least know what it is that you are using. Whereas prohibition, as you said, you're then completely in the hands of people whose primary function is purely profit on the black market. You could get almost literally anything and you know, you've got no legal recourse. You can't take your dealer to trading standards for not giving you what you've asked for. It's risk does skyrocket as a result. But it has been said, as, as you've rightfully said, by all, all the major parties, at least, that prohibition is going to continue to be the policy of choice. So mm. it's just how then we manoeuvre and work within that. Within this, there is a business out there. There are people, it might not be a legal business, but there is a business, a huge complex business around creating, selling drugs and it's getting more advanced. It's getting more creative. It's using a range of different technologies. Again, smartphone technology, uh, the online world, the dark web, being able to move around things very easily. And particularly in the UK, you often hear people talk about what's called county lines, exploiting vulnerable adults, in particular young people, to spread these things around very, very quickly, using that tech and getting things out there. This is an issue that is just getting more and more challenging more and more complex as you mentioned earlier on with with the 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 range of new psychoactive substances what's formerly known as legal highs you know spice synthetic cannabinoids is one of the big one but every year more and more are added to the pot and in 2021 there was 52 new drugs discovered for the first time that we discovered across Europe that never been discovered before that have potentially been misused in some way, which equates to one new drug a week. Every year, more and more are being produced, more out onto the street. It just shows us that this isn't going to go away. And the more we just try and tackle this in a really black and white, drugs are bad, don't do them, the more we're missing the challenge that there are people out there exploiting individuals and often the people who are using are either recreational users who are just wanting a good time. Again, let's let's disc- <laughs> let's not go into too much detail about the moral uh, rights or wrongs of that, but people are doing it for that reason. Or people in long-term addiction when they are perhaps are, are struggling, have been using it as a coping mechanism to deal with past or current traumas, and it's just it's just not going to go away. It then becomes then what would be the issues then of access and support them for people in um, with addiction issues. And on this note, and the first one that comes to mind for me, especially when we talk about this in the context of a policy culture of prohibition, the first one that immediately springs to mind would be shame. There is a great deal of shame attached to, well, stigma certainly attached to drug users. If someone is carrying that round, if they are in long-term addiction due to, as you've mentioned, taking substances to mask either current or past trauma, that is only really going to heighten that level of uh, shame and angst. And- it's, it, it's always been an issue. The, the shame and guilt that comes with it. We could even talk about this from people who are in uh, long-term alcohol use as well, because let's face it, our society, whatever your views of alcohol are, it's a part of our culture. You know, we the, the public house, going to the supermarket, you know, offers on beers and wine. It's part of our culture, whether or not you drink or you don't drink. And even that, even though it's part of our culture, there is still a high level of stigma in people getting support for drug, uh, for their alcohol use. For example, if, if you're out with your friends who and you usually drink, you go to a pub and you just say, I, I'm not drinking. Oh, what's wrong with you? Everyone has a pie. You know, it's this culture, this normalizing it as well. So it isn't just for, I guess, illicit drugs. It's every sort of, uh, it, it, it's everything, including things like alcohol. And you're absolutely right. That guilt, that shame is a powerful emotion that holds people back, particularly if people start using it as a coping mechanism. And that coping mechanism creates another problem as well. How do I end this? How do I break this? Or if I'm just used to this cycle, what is going to be the next step? It's a scary thought for so many people. And people who don't know this well will often say, well, just stop using. And it's like, if if people knew that, if people realized that and could do it, then I'm such an idiot. I didn't think about that. But But so many people can't. And that's why they need to be able to access that support. And as you said, guilt and shame holds people back. And if we're talking about that, we also need to recognise just what we discussed earlier on, which is just the resources. I might decide 
right here, right now, me and you might be having a conversation and I might turn around and go, I'm having a problem with substance. I need to go and get it sorted. So I walk into my local drug service and with the best will of the world, they say to me, we're here for you. We want to help you, but uh, we don't have an appointment for you for the next three weeks. Maybe this is due to just not having the resources, high levels of staff sickness, whatever it may be. And then you get told your first appointment has to be maybe in a group setting where you get almost like a group induction. For so many people, that is just enough of a barrier to go, I I just can't do that. I can't wait three weeks. I'm ready to do it now. Or if I do, I can't face being in a group. It's Sometimes it's just enough for that person to go, no, just can't do it. I mean, as you said before, there are reasons for group inductions, but it, it it definitely, from my experience, certain certain mindsets, certain personalities just are not suited to that sort of position. And it can very, very quickly, as, yeah, as you rightly say, it can, it can turn people off in an instant, especially when you're at that point of accepting there may be an issue. It's dawned on you that, this is the, this is the way to to get help, and I'm sure this is something we've touched upon in a previous episode. Uh, it, being left hanging in that situation, yeah, it, it can absolutely kill that resolve in an instant. We we have to think about uh, how services are being commissioned. I know we were discussing this earlier on, but one of the things that we've seen has been a common way of commissioning drug services, particularly in the last ten or so years, has been these one stop shops for everything. And the the emphasis has been on the medical support. So I guess if you are a, an opiate user like heroin using, being prescribed a substitute prescribing, again, people may, may have um, heard of things like methadone before, or if you are, say, an alcohol user, a medically assisted detox, because that's where the highest risk is. We know that, that stuff keeps people alive and keeps them functioning long enough to get that longer-term recovery support. But that is often where the challenge is, is that if you are focused everything or so much your resources on the medical stuff, what about the other stuff that comes with it? The relationship building, the people, the, the belief that there is more than just the addiction after this, because there can be a huge gap. You know, if your whole life has been around the addiction, sourcing the substance, using it with people, the after effects, it becomes a full-time job in itself. If you take that away from someone and don't give them support afterwards, then people are going to be struggling. And let's be honest, there is also like a link between substance use and criminal records. The prisons are full of people on short-term prison sentences for drug-related offending. That also is a huge barrier because you get yourself sober, you get yourself into recovery, and you suddenly then have the guilt, maybe extra levels of shame to deal with that. So I think what we have to see, and there are some really good practice around this, and I'm sure our guests will go into a lot more detail around this, of thinking in longer-term recovery. And particularly, drug services have been fantastic, uh, particularly over the, uh, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, of really pushing this visible recovery, getting people involved in service as peer mentors, as volunteers, giving people something back, or even giving them a pathway into maybe paid employment as well. But there has to be some consideration of that. What next? And that's why that this word recovery and the, the whole recovery movement has been such a positive side of it because it helps to move beyond just the medical model and start to think about growth, next steps. Who do you want to be? You know, everything that comes with it, which it can be not easily missed. That's probably the wrong word to say, but it can be missed when we are focusing on keeping people alive in those in, in those medical models. Which I think if we're talking about good practice and uh, recovery, it is probably worth bringing in our guest. Okay, welcome to our guest in this episode. So we will begin with who are you and what do you do? I'm Helen Cook, I'm working in Forward Leeds. I'm in the middle of two roles at the moment, so I've been in Forward Leeds for about four years and I've come to Forward Leeds as an area manager. So I'm an area manager for the West Northwest of Leeds. Uh, I'm one of three area managers that the contract has and I'm just moving in now to the operations director role. So I'm just over two, two jobs at the moment. What is it like to run a service supporting people with substance use issues? 
Well, it's always a challenge. I don't think it's ever not challenging. And obviously the picture changes from, from one year to the next. COVID era has been quite a challenge. Here at the moment, we definitely feel like we're moving out of that era. Definitely feel like we're putting the pandemic behind us. We're moving on. We've learned a lot through that process. You know, it was uh, difficult for all the services right at the beginning of COVID when we hit lockdown and how to respond. And we've been fortunate in Forward Leads as well to have some research going on in the background. So we're looking forward to some of that research coming out. It'll look at our response to COVID, how we worked, the benefits of remote working and what works and what might not work so well. Um, we'll take a lot of recommendations for that for consideration to see how we can continue to grow and adapt we might be coming out of the era of COVID, but we've got a lot of lessons that we can learn from and still take those recommendations with us and see how we can continue to, to develop the service going forward in our post-COVID era, if you like. Whilst we're on that subject, it's probably worth discussing about your response. Yeah, so at the start of COVID, it, you know, it took everybody by surprise almost. It was everybody's in the building one day and then the next day we can't be in the building. So the, the sharp shock was to get everybody mobilised to work remotely. Um, in Forward Leads, we, you know, we're very well, we've got a great contract, we've got everything we need, we deliver a fantastic service. We were probably caught short on the technology because we didn't all have laptops, we didn't all have mobile phones. So mobilising everybody to get get home and get that kit and equipment and take things home with them, we, we did that. We had to implement rotors. I think what we did really well in COVID was we didn't shut the doors, so we continued to deliver practically every aspect of our service one way or another. Um, there was some things that we couldn't deliver, for example, BBVs and, and urine screening, some of, you know, some of the close contacts work that we do. But we, yeah, we just had to mobilise and work remotely and work through it much like everybody else, make sure we all had a presence here, made sure we knew where our service users were. We started out at the beginning of COVID with quite long lists of people that we really needed to make sure we got a hold of and we did home visits and made sure we had eyes on everybody who was in our service we, um, we went to great lengths to make sure we could make sure everybody was safe and well and implement everything we could to make sure everybody was safe and well as well so how does this fit in with your wider approach then this this response and perhaps your learning over the last couple of years um, I think some of the learning that we're going to take forward and some of the ways of working that we have implemented through this will go hand in hand to complement so some of the other approaches that we've been putting into place. So um, pre-COVID, we started working and thinking about our approaches regarding becoming trauma-informed. We had a plan that had been established within Forward Leads to look at how we want to become trauma-informed. It was certainly the direction of travel. It's in a way that we wanted to work. It was progressive. Finding the right time to dedicate the time and attention that requires that is something that had been a bit of a challenge you know we're always so busy forward leads had been a new service a new partnership had spent a long time sort of coming together as a partnership and growing and you know building those solid foundations pre-covid we were at a point where we could start thinking about what we can do next and becoming trauma-informed is one of those areas that we felt that we had the time and capacity to focus on the timing of it <laughs> was quite interesting because my first meeting that I had with regards to setting up becoming trauma informed was actually in the middle of COVID it was in the June of, of that or May of, of that first COVID year so um, it was very much about what can we do in these difficult circumstances and I guess the journey that we've taken to become trauma informed would have looked probably very different if we weren't doing it in the middle of COVID so the the order of events the order that we did things might have looked different if we weren't in COVID definitely taking a you know a slow process of what we can do, chipping away bits and pieces here and there, working with the restrictions that we had, thinking about trying to be trauma-informed, trying to welcome people back to the service and how that might feel for people, recognising that, you know, our service users were in a very different world pre and post-COVID and during COVID, how are they going to feel about coming back to the service, how safe do they feel? And part of being trauma-informed is creating that psychological safety, creating a safe space where people want to come. And asking people to return to one-to-one -one appointments, asking people to come back into a building could have been quite a difficult time for some people if they're experiencing anxiety or if they're worried about the outside world. So one of the things we did, for example, which we wouldn't have done if maybe at the start, maybe we would have, um, but we did videos to sort of show our service users what our service looked like in each of the three main hubs. So it's going to look very different when you come in. We're going to be asking different things of you. You know, you're not going to be able to just wander in, sit down, have a coffee chat comfortably with your with the other people there you actually are going to be asked to knock at the door you're going to be brought in you're going to be asked where to sit 
we can't offer tea or coffee at that moment. So it's going to look and feel very different. So we did some little videos about a walkthrough of the services and what it might look like and how it might feel and what dif what the difference is and why. So we just tried to create that opportunity for people to understand the difference in the services. We've done a lot of other work with the trauma-informed approach since then. But, you know, in the early days, they were the some of the approaches that we took were, yeah, different to what we might have done um, if we'd started it right now, for example. Uh, so, so it's an ongoing journey for you then? Yeah. It's an ongoing journey. I think it it always was an ongoing journey. I don't think there's any right or way, wrong way of doing it. There's so much to do with the journey of becoming trauma-informed. Knowing where to start was quite a challenge. And <laughs> there's so many ideas, there's so many options. There's every, every time you look at one area, it feels like it opens up a Pandora's box of other areas and the knock-on effects. So it could be quite overwhelming. Uh, what we did do is we came to a realisation that we couldn't do everything at once. And we started to pick out one or two things that we wanted to focus on that we felt we could focus on. And we've chipped away at it at that way. So I, I did a, a bit of a presentation to the senior management team in Humankind recently. And when you're reflecting and looking back over the three years and everything you've done, I had half an hour slot, but I could have probably <laughs> given them an hour, an hour's worth of what we've been up to and what we've been doing over the time and what we've learned and what we've changed and ideas for the future. And yeah, it's, quite a journey definitely maybe maybe two three hours perhaps <laughs> Just it, easy yeah. fantastic so a, a lot of change has happened and as, as well externally in terms of government policy we had uh dame carol black's report that came out last summer which helped influence the new drug strategy that was released in i believe december 21 we're almost a year down the line. How what what's been your uh, reflections on the impact of the new drug strategy? I guess for the the field and also for forward leads, perhaps. I think firstly, I, reading the Dame Carol Black report, it was music to your ears. It's it just it spoke our language. Of for me, it spoke my language. It said everything that you knew, everything that you've been experiencing over working in services for the last 10, 15, however many years. You you feel that depletion. You feel the and see the. The budgets that have been cut, the impact that's had on what service you can and can't deliver. So it was a breath of fresh air to have the report for me. And within Forward Leads, we've been really fortunate to benefit from the recommendations of the report. So we're one of the priority areas. We've been able to receive some new incoming funding from OHID. And we were also fortunate to have that start from year one. So we're already implementing and expanding and growing and you know improving what we're doing from already benefiting from this incoming funding from OHID. In COVID, we, like many other areas, probably got access to add-on grants, pieces of work, uh, thinking about street support and rough sleeping, um, mental health. So what year one has done for us meant we can actually continue with some of those, what had been short-term grants, we've been able to solidify that, make that permanent, embed that, and then continue to grow on that. So we're, we're working now, it's working now on year two and year three, and what bid we might put together we're looking at what we're doing really well we're not trying to revolutionize what we do we're not trying to do everything differently actually through covid and since our recent inspection for cqc we are outstanding we've got a lot of understanding and ideas about what we're doing really well and we want to keep doing that really well the last thing we want to do is change what we're doing we just need to do more of what we do and continue to do it really well there are some other pockets of innovation that we obviously want to look at and consider but we just want to keep providing a, an outstanding service and, and keep hold of that that quality, that that outstanding CQC rating that we've been fortunate to receive recently. Which I think is worth exploring a little bit more because it's very challenging to get a outstanding rating from the CQC, mm -hmm. and it should be one as a as a badge of honour for any service to have it. So, from your perspective, how how do you think you gain that outstanding? What was it about your approach that led to this outstanding rating then? Well, I think firstly, it hasn't happened overnight. It's a long, that in itself is also a journey. We were inspected three years ago and we were good, um, which is fantastic. It's a really great achievement. Within the ratings three years ago, we did have an outstanding and our well-led. So what we, was really important to us was we continue to keep what we've already got, continue to remain well-led. Our governance structures, how we lead the, the contract is already outstanding. We wanted to keep that. And then we wanted to focus and spend more time to, really clearly evidence to the CQC why we felt we were outstanding in those other areas. I think given that we're a partnership and we're an integrated model, I think that's a great strength. Given that we have no thresholds coming into forward leads, we, we don't use the term, you know, you're an addict, you're it's, it's addiction. If you're feeling that you need some kind of level of support with anything to do with drugs or alcohol, you can ring us and we'll find a way to give you some level of support. 
So we have no thresholds coming into the service and we try and meet everybody's needs as effectively as possible. So I think we've come together really well as a partnership since the, the beginning of Forward Leads and how that has grown and developed and strengthened and how we operate. The strive, the ambition, I think, in Leeds, the council, Leeds City Council are so ambitious for us. Um, we're all ambitious for ourselves as well and for our service users and the communities that we're serving. So having that ambition to be the best, to be the best city, to achieve the highest targets, to see all these people exiting successfully and really changing their lives, that really pushes us to be better all the time and have a really good focus on how we're performing. We're looked after by the council because they want that ambition, you know, they have that ambition for us. They give us what we need to be able to do that and they prioritise the, the drug and alcohol service and what we do and they really value what we do. And I think that's been really helpful. What would you say then has been your learning? Because you have, <laughs> you joined at a very interesting time with so many changes going on, a global pandemic. Right here, right now, what would you say has been your key learning or perhaps reflections from the last few years? Oh, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think, I think what I've learned is it really can be done and you can have a fantastic service. I have worked in various services and everywhere I've worked, I've absolutely had a, you know, felt privileged and you know it's been a pleasure to work wherever I've been every team that you work with everybody you work with in this field they're such good people who just want to do really well but the services often look different depending on how they're commissioned and what you can deliver in the budgets that you've got and um I think here shows me that this integrated model that we've got we're we're a big contract where we've got a lot of people coming through our doors we've got three and a half thousand service users at any one time we're still looking to grow and expand and increase that number and really reach everybody who who needs to use us but I think my experience here is this partnership approach can work really well it's never easy it's never straightforward we don't all agree on everything all the time but we have mutual respect for each other in each other's organizations we work through problems we identify what we can do better we identify and celebrate what's going well we really try and value our workforce and you know we've got reward days coming up for example because it's really difficult we want people to have some time out and do something enjoyable so I think it does show that an integrated service with all its challenges can really have a massive impact. And yeah, it just shows that you can work really well and deliver great outcomes for the people of your community. Because that's who we're here for, you know, the, the people. It's not just the people that use the service, it's their friends, it's their families, it's the whole community that, that we're serving. So it's um, it's humbling to know that it can work. It takes hard work, but it, it can be done and it's it's great when it's working. What's your thoughts in terms of staff wellbeing? What's been your approach? And yeah, the, these yeah. reward days, tell me a bit more about them. So the workforce first, you have to duly note that it is really hard at the moment to recruit. I think everybody's experiencing difficulty with recruitment and, and staff retention. This is one of the wonderful things about the Dame Cara Black Report and the incoming investment and funding. It means we can, we want to grow. It's hard to, it's hard to meet all those demands at the moment, actually. With the, with the incoming funding, it's, it's hard to get the workforce together. But the investment that we're going to, take to sort of really invest in that workforce really train them up re re-skill we've got some brilliantly skilled people don't get me wrong fantastic skilled people in forward leads we have workforce development as well so we're continuously working on developing the workforce and giving them different pieces of training responding to needs and learning that we do throughout our everyday job so there's the workforce that's a challenge and yes we're recruiting to that and we want to retrain We've managed in four days to do lots of ad hoc pieces of training as well. So if we get an opportunity, we'll be able to offer um, maybe a, an accredited training course. We use the skills and knowledge of our staff who are willing and want to sort of share their knowledge and skills in what we call uh, PDGs, professional development groups. So um, we offer different pieces of training that all the people in four days can have access to. As a lead provider, Humankind has opened up their training suite to our partners as well. So we might make sure we've got a level of consistency of training and opportunity for all our staff across the whole of the partnership. Wellbeing. You know, there's lots of organisations like ours will have access to things like wellbeing hubs. On We've got a wellbeing hub on our cascade, for example. We have mindfulness for staff on the Mondays that is done by one of our group workers that anybody can dip in and access if they feel that they need to. Uh, we support our managers, support our staff. We recently, as part of our trauma-informed implementation, our trauma-informed approaches, I was able to secure a role for somebody to come in and deliver the reflective practice. So recognising the impact of um the impact of our line of work on our staff members as well and how that impacts them it's it's a lot of high risk it's a lot of difficult situations you know it can be triggering for them re-traumatizing for them it can have a really impact on them so bringing somebody in to offer them that reflective practice in a very safe 
trusted environment where they can think about the impact of their work on them and, and their their responses to it and understand their responses to it and how that's impacting has been really important. Again, you know, that's a piece of recruitment that we've got going on. So we'll be recruiting to that again shortly. But recognising the importance of the staff well-being and looking after your staff so they can look after the service users. You know, our key priorities are service users, um, but we have to look after our staff as well. And we do what we can when we can to recognise that. Simple things like, we, you know, a culture of just praising. If somebody's done a great piece of work, I get loads of emails from managers about their staff and the clinician has said this about my RC and it's just a great piece of work and we just want to say thank you. And Joe went above and beyond on this on this piece of work and it was you know, and they recognise and value pieces of work as it goes along and they send us emails and we give that recognition, we give that thanks back. And when we can, we do days. So a couple of years ago, you know, one of the days was a walk. So we, we took some time, went out for a walk in Grassington or some people did some um, some laser quests or whatever. You know, we ask what they want to do. We find an opportunity. We agree it with the commissioners. We don't interfere with the service delivery that's also key we don't just shut down the service and off we go it's we we find a way to give people an opportunity for some time out and just show that we we reward them you can't always just pay everybody loads more money that's unfortunately that's not that's not always possible but you know even in this challenging time all our organizations charities do what they can to try and bring that recognition and try and do what they can for people's salaries and try and pay people as fairly as possible so that's a constant conversation and discussion as well. And given the opportunity, yeah, we absolutely want to sort of give thanks and reward in various different ways to our workforce. I, I guess at this point, if anyone wants to know anything more about the good work that you do in Fold Leads, how can they find more information about your service then? Well, we've got a website, Fold Leads website, and our phone numbers are on there. Recently, we've been doing some recruitment webinars so watch out for those as well so if you're interested in working in the field or find out more about working with us uh, one of our new ways to try and reach people is to talk about the roles that we've got available meet some of the staff ask some questions and I'm sure there'll be other things that we're going to be planning throughout the years ahead and the months ahead about events and how we're going to try and engage people to come and learn more about us and to come and work with us but in the meantime we've got yeah we've got a website that you can go to and that's a great first point of call. Thank you very much Helen for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Fantastic. That was uh, our guest discussing how we can respond in a positive way. That brings us nicely onto our last part to really think about the positives, the good practice, or potentially the opportunities out there to really think about how we respond what do you think then, Andrew? What's your thoughts then about good practice, response, positivity? What can we do around all of this? Well, in, in terms of good practice, and I, I don't want to be uh, sounding like a, a broken record or anything, but what, one of the, the main points that always comes back to me is it's important for practitioners to be be respectful and treat treat the service users with dignity that seems like the most obvious thing in the world to say but as we've said quite often not always but quite often you'll have cases who are using drugs to mask trauma so they're going to feel that there's going to be guilt and shame attached to that and then on top of it there's a social guilt and shame that's attached to the drug use on top of that, if, they're, if they've had access to criminal justice, drug users, apart from sex offenders, tend to be at the bottom rung of the criminal hierarchy. So there will be a guilt and a shame attached to that. And they'll be not always used to people engaging with them or speaking to them in, in a respectful manner, which, when you actually stop to think about it, is an absolutely awful thing to say, but is true. So trying to build from a place of dignity and respect is the most important thing. Yes, there'll be setbacks that there may be pushback at certain times, but if the, the, there's a maintenance of that dignity and respect, it can give people a stake and license in things, something to hold on to when they're going through this long and complicated journey. If we're considering that approach, which I, I couldn't agree with you more, I think what we also have to do is think about how services are commissioned and how staff are supported to do that because so many people I've spoke to who are frontline drug workers now are just caught up in the chaos I, as I mentioned I used to dealing with I've got so many people to see to tick off and it's become 
almost like an admin risk management exercise rather than building and maintaining positive relationships. And I think so many people who who are doing these jobs are looking for that. I wanting that reduction in caseloads to drop and are wanting that time with an individual to know who they are as a human being and give them that relationship and build, build those positive connections up, which is so, so vital. You know, I, I sometimes think, we can fall into the trap of sitting down with someone and saying, right, what's going to get you drug free? And I think sometimes that's being drug free is only half the story. For me, it's about what's going to get you happy. What's going to get you to a good place in life? What does your recovery look like? And work with that person along the way and look at a more holistic approach. We talked about the, the challenges of multi-agency work. And I think this probably comes up in everything that we talk about rightly. So, but again, when we're thinking about people in long-term addiction, there is, again, that ripple effect that as I may be starting to deal with my addiction issues, I'm suddenly aware that I need more stable accommodation. So I need some level of housing team, or if I'm still living in a chaotic environment, maybe an outreach team. I may have been medicating, so I might need some support through mental health services or dual diagnosis work, so I can, can work on both of those things at the same time. It might be that I've lost connection with people. So it might be activities that build up positive human connections. And again, that's really, it's really positive to see in the world of addiction, you have things like recovery communities and recovery groups based on things like the 12 steps model or the smart recovery model where people can come together in that mutual aid and that connection, which is so, so vital. And that stuff has been there, but that's just been the only option. I think bringing in the more, person-centered one-to-one support that groups uh, drugs workers can offer beyond just groups it has to be explored and it has to be pushed as much as possible for for the well-being of people who use it but also the well-being of staff who actually want to do that and make a difference something that you um, mentioned earlier as well uh, agencies and the support that involves people who've gone through the recovery journey with peer mentors or whatever particular name that you wish to um, to place on that. I've always found that those that sort of connection is always vital as well to because you can you can work with someone and know all the theories till you're blue in the face, but if you've got someone who's actually walked the walk, who actually knows the, the the difficult decisions, the different angles, who may have different ideas of okay, how to how to manage your cravings, how to how to deal with the, these situations with a little bit more real world application than simply just knowing the theories. It it does it le- it lends a lot more credence and has a lot more power for people when they're going through that journey. I think that is also something that is absolutely vital when it comes to positive practice and another thing that i wanted to mention as well i'm not sure if they still do this now but i i, I remember w- way back way way back in another life when they used to have court dates especially set for people to review the progress on um, drug and alcohol treatment orders sometimes these were um quite honestly the source of some of the possibly the most cringy moments that you'll have, have, have ever had in your professional career. I remember uh, one time a magistrate telling someone who was just starting out on their recovery journey of uh, quite a serious crack and heroin addiction, genuinely just said, oh, well, you know, maybe next time when you feel like you might relapse, just go for a run. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it, it comes from a good place, but it ultimately isn't that helpful. But what that what these situations can do for people who are actually seriously pushing through and making big strides is it gives extra validation and positivity to remind them that yes, this is hard, but you are doing well. You you are progressing, and even if you think it's only small, it's still progress. Another thing I'm thinking about as well is that with all the challenges that we talked about, you know, in terms of not having the resources and having that person-centered approach, we, we have to invest in staff because everything you've just talked about then and what we've already discussed, if you don't have the staff there that are trained and supported, none of this can, can work. And I, I often do a lot of work with, with agencies around emerging drug trends. And it, it's such a sad thing when you, you're talking to someone that's perhaps worked in this field for many years who suddenly turns around and says, I feel incompetent. You know, a heroin user walks in, an alcohol user walks in, a crack user walks in, I can deal with it. Someone using synthetic cannabinoids, the spice drugs, or other sort of unknown powders or dodgy illicit benzodiazepines that never heard of before, they suddenly go, I I can't deal with this. I'm not good enough. I I don't have the skills to do this. And I'm like, you do. 
you've just you've just been in an environment that's just been about firefighting and dealing with that situation for so long. So I do think we need to get better at thinking about how we keep on top of all these new trends and recognize that we can respond. We don't need to know everything. We just need to know some key bits of information and really think about how can I use that to support individuals as well. And I also say just to, to drug services, advertise that you're there to meet the needs of, of new substances as well. Because so many people believe I'm using something new, so I can't go because I'm not a heroin user. Do you know, I, I'm not, I don't need a, a methadone script. So what's the point of me going there? Again, it's challenging the stigma, not just of me needing support, but thinking that drug services aren't there to meet my need. Subjects like this and, and more are things that you could learn about um, for the people who attended uh, our uh, quarterly um, substance misuse briefings this year. Uh, thank you to everyone who did and hopefully see a lot more of you next year. But enough shameless plugs. I'll, I'll leave that there. <laughs> but, but that's. But again, this is why we run things, like that and that's why I did, I deliver so much around these emerging drug trends. It's it, it's it's interesting, of course, to to know what's going on. But it's also to just reassure people they've already got the skills. It's just a bit of knowledge to reassure people could be the most powerful thing. And having those quarterly meetings just helps with that. And I think. The challenge of this whole area is there are just so many things to consider. You know, we've, we've definitely filed this episode under the introduction rather than a full in-depth look at everything. So I think you could talk about accessing services in a lot more detail and look at it from other areas as well. We are going to put on the podcast feed a link to find your local drug service. So if you want to know more what's out there or if you yourself are maybe thinking you could do with some support, there is we are going to put a link in the in the uh, feed there. So please have a click on that and that'll take you to your nearest drug service. If you want to get in touch, feel free to do so. Get in touch on the feed, get in touch with us on Twitter or drop us an email. All the information is on our feed and also on the website as well. We really do look forward to your comments. If there is anything particular from today that you would like to for us to talk more about, or you've got a guest that you think would be really interesting to talk about this field, please feel free to get in touch. I just want to say thank you very much once again for listening. I have been David Gill. And I've been Andrew James. And this has been Frontline. We look forward to seeing you on the next one. Goodbye. Bye-bye.